Welcome to the Coronation Merchant Bank podcast series, where we discuss economic, market, growth, and development trends, as well as relevant topical themes. My name is Chinwe Egwim, Chief Economist of Coronation Merchant Bank, and I will stir these conversations. Each episode promises to be interesting, and I am confident you will receive insightful nuggets from our discussions. Now let's get started. This episode is titled Inflation versus Consumption. It is safe to say that inflation and consumer sentiment share an inverted relationship. Now, when inflation rises, consumer confidence often declines. There is currently a steady dilemma between the consumer's desire to buy what they want and the need to make concessions based on the impact of inflationary pressure on wallets and purses. Consumers are allocating a higher share of wallet to goods and services that meet basic needs. As inflation pressures challenge household budgets, consumers seem to be increasingly substituting groceries for restaurant meals in an effort to stretch monthly food budgets. Now, one way to navigate a high inflation environment is to make smart spending choices. However, to stay ahead when inflation soars, a forward-thinking approach would be to invest and outpace inflation with your portfolio returns. But it is worth noting that there are no guarantees. Most businesses, especially those within the consumer goods space, are doing what they can to mitigate the impact of price hikes on their customer base. A handful of FMCGs that is, fast-moving consumer goods, are absorbing a lot of their cost increases in an effort to retain loyalty and manage consumer engagement. Retailers and manufacturers will want to align price increases with consumers' perceived value of products. However, if for any reason this is misaligned and consumers view the products as less valuable, there could be a trade down to an alternative product or the consumer could completely avoid purchasing the product. Now from the supply side, strategic pricing reviews should remain a priority. Looking ahead, we expect headline inflation to record subsequent upticks in the near term. This episode takes a deep dive into rising inflation with supply shocks and consumption patterns in focus. My guest today is Toby Adeni, Director of Supply Chain at Unilever. Now, rising inflation is currently a burning topic, not just in Nigeria, but across the globe. Looking forward to unpacking inflation trends with supply chain and consumption patterns in focus. So Toby, let's begin. My first question is, Rising inflation poses as a risk for consumer spending, given that it impacts real earnings. From your vantage point, have there been significant changes in consumption patterns? Okay, thanks for having me, Chinwe. Um, to, your, to your question, I think the, the, the typical response we would see from consumers would be downtrade, downtrading. Um, essentially, um, either going for 
something cheaper um, or a cheaper brand or also going for um, a cheaper pack size or pack format um, within a specific brand. So this has been proven over the years, you know, across different spectrum of, of consumers. You would see, for example, for, for Mercedes cars over the years, um, the C-Class, which is supposed to be the entry level at a point for, for Mercedes, the sales have actually surpassed the E-Class. It's the same thing you would see in, in the consumer goods market where um, over the last two to three decades, sachet pack sizes, you know, have become the go-to packs versus um, large packs. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that the entry pack offerings are low in quality, but it's just more around, you know, affordability. And at the end of the day, you know, consumers could either be brand loyalists, um, which therefore they would adjust in terms of portion control or frequency of usage, or the not so loyal who would just be keen on something cheaper, but a big but, you know, cheaper but functional. So as much as they would pay a bit lower, you know, the, the, the offering still has to be functional and solves the problem. And so the key thing is that, you know, you have within your portfolio to cater for the needs of your consumers across different tiers. Thank you for that response. So the sachet economy is really growing, like from your perspective and uh, based on your response. So I think that's something yeah. that we, yeah, that's something that we need to uh, pay attention to as economists. Um, although inflationary pressure is weighing heavy on pockets, um, purses and pockets are being severely pinched. We expect demand for essential goods to remain strong. Do you share the same view? So yes, yes, I do in, in, in essence, um, because you know the, the basic underlying factors would still be um, you know, critical indicators such as population growth, which would you know, always continue to drive demand for essential goods. Um, a large chunk of the population also is young and growing. And, and I mean, to put it in practical terms, you know, as, as children grow up, they tend to eat more, you know, they tend to consume a bit more soap, a bit more toothpaste, um, you know, than, than what they would be consuming maybe a few years ago. They would need bigger mattresses or mats to sleep on. You know, preteens would suddenly start getting a bit more interested in personal care and beauty would be more interested in stuff like deodorants, um, a bit of makeup, even you know, um, hair care and the rest of it. So, you know, I think overall, the, the, the demand, yes, would remain strong. What could be an area to watch would be um, the volume. So, so you could have a situation where consumption volumes also begin to, to change a bit. So for example, the, the level of toothpaste you put on your toothbrush, would you just you know, swat it all across the toothbrush or would you start using a pea-sized portion on it? Um, if you're cooking a large meal, would you use you know, four cubes of, you know, of a savory product or would you use, reduce it to three? So those sort of things would also you know, begin to, to change in a way. People would try to, to draw back a bit to manage. But overall, you know, that, that, that demand... Um, would still essentially, um, you know, still hold firm in terms of um, essential goods. Hmm. Okay, very interesting. Thank you for that. Now, sure. prior to the Russia-Ukraine crisis, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic had already worsened supply chain challenges, increasing operating costs for a lot of um, businesses. In your view, 
would you say that industry players within Africa have been able to adapt to supply shock uh, challenges? Um, in what ways would be the best way to navigate in this current macroeconomic environment? So I would say um, largely yes, in terms of um, industry players within Africa um, adapting. Um, so the, the adjustment in this part of the world in terms of COVID-19 impact was much faster. Um, I mean, if you recall, the scenes we, we would have seen in the developing world in the UK, the US, around empty shelves, um, toilet paper being scarce and the rest of it was not exactly as visible as it was, you know, um, compared to in this part of the world. Um, I mean, yes, a, a contributing factor would be the fact that there were, you know, much lower number of cases and, and the, log, the impact of the lockdowns would, would say maybe we're slightly more relaxed after maybe the second or the third month. But, you know, in terms of ways to navigate, you know, this, that, that's where tactical planning comes into play. So um, you would have seen, what, what would have happened is industry players would have, you know, reviewed their lead times, um, adjust inventory levels for, for input materials, trying to optimize whatever you have that's available, um, making tough decisions on what to produce with limited resources, um, you know, and, and localization also began to, to play a key role because um, a lot more input materials, both raw and packaging, you know, people had to start finding ways to source them locally as well and, you know, reduce the impact of this external um, global shocks. So, so at least those are some of the tactical ways where most um, industry players have tried to navigate, you know, in, in this whole COVID-19 um, post-environment. Okay. Okay, so my next question is this. With inflation trending upwards due to prevailing macroeconomic conditions, uh, headline inflation is currently at 19.6%, almost 20%. Um, what is your outlook on consumption patterns and consumer confidence? Okay, so um, I think to the earlier point I made, consumers would inevitably move across the tiers in terms of disposable income. And therefore, there's likely, um, you know, there's a likely risk of a, a bit of a dip in, in consumer confidence, you know, driven by this experience in terms of the, their pockets being tightened a bit. But, you know, with the thing we usually say about Nigerians, you know, there's no better way to describe it. For me, the way I say it is Nigerians are still optim optimistically pessimistic, if I would call it that. So you would still see even with, with the growing trends, there's a bit more interest in um, buy now, pay later, or pay over a couple of months. So there's still some level of aspiration, you know, from the consumer end. People still want to have a relatively, um, you know, good experience. They still want to, to, to do what they were doing in the past, um, despite the macroeconomic situations. Um, of course, some industries may remain stronger than others. You know, for example, food or alcohol um, segments, you know, generally tend to be a bit inflation-proof. Um, you would still see um, some, some strong trends coming there. And then I think the, the other thing is consumers are gradually getting more aware as well. So, so you start hearing a lot more people talk about shrinkflation, 
which is essentially when people say, hey, look, I used to buy a, a can of milk or, or something and it looks like it's half filled and the rest of it and the size has been changed, but the price is the same. So, you know, consumers are getting more sensitive to, you know, fill rates, pack sizes, and, and eventually all of this, you know, would point to the fact that when disposable income, you know, is impacted, if that item or service is in, if it's a non-negotiable, people would still go ahead, you know, to spend. But then this is where also we we'll begin to see some of the non-negotiables sort of drop off, which could be maybe um, in some instances entertainment or clothing or other things such as that. So, so overall, I mean, that, that's how I would, would view it at this point in time. Okay, I actually agree to a large extent with your, with your view. But on the back of your outlook, how can consumers maximize their resources? And then how can companies within the consumer goods space operate efficiently? Okay, so I think, I mean, first of all, con consumers um, also become sensitive to price points. So for some, for some certain industries or areas or, or pack sizes, there are some magic price points. So for example, pure water at 20 naira, um, bottled water at maybe 50 or 100 naira, a standard meal you buy from a buka, maybe without protein, 100 naira, um, a sachet of detergent that at least can guarantee you one wash in terms of maybe a bucket of, of, of laundry um, at 20 naira or 30 naira. Um, the Thai Thai savory cubes, you know, whilst in the supermarket, you would have a pouch of maybe 50 cubes or 25 cubes in it. You know, in the general market, you would see that it's broken down into um, maybe smaller number of cubes, about two or three. Um, again, that could be at a price point of 10 naira, a bar of soap for a family at 200 naira. So these are sort of the, the kind of magic price points you would, um, you know, generally see across the market. Um, again, you, you now need to ensure that whatever you do um, in terms of as, as a company operating efficiently, you try to, to work within those price points. Um, otherwise the price elasticity, you know, could, could work in a, in a manner that's not so favorable for you. I, I think the other thing as well is that the, the whole setup as it is today, it brings about some level of innovation as well. A couple of years ago, Typically, for example, in the beverage industry, people would you would buy your sugar separately, you buy your milk separately, you buy your, your chocolate drink sachet separately. Now we're seeing a lot more three-in-one offerings where you, you don't need to, you know, to buy all those items separately. You just buy one pack of a three-in-one and then you, you, you mix it with hot water and, and that's it. You have your, your cup of drink. That, in essence, is sort of win-win because... For the consumer, it helps them become a bit more cost effective, you know, and then also for the manufacturer, they gain a bit more scale through volumes. And, and that way we sort of balance it. I think the important thing is that companies would benefit, you know, companies that would benefit or survive the current trends are those who really study um, the consumer patterns, consumer behavior, and are ahead of the curve, you know, in terms of meeting those those needs of the consumers. And, and that way, that's, that's where you, you really latch onto it. You, you're able to get the scale, operate more efficiently, and you have the demand also pulling through. Hmm, okay, thank you for that.
Now, according to the National Bureau of Statistics, over 50% of household expenses tilt towards food. And this is as at 2019, so it's very possible that uh, that figure has increased. But in your opinion, how, how different are consumption patterns between households located in rural areas and um, households um, across urban centers? Okay, so, I mean, in, in principle, we whether it's urban or rural, there are some basic things that would happen. We would all um, bathe, we would eat, we would take care of our skin or our body. Um, so there are a couple of things that are consistent across. Um, I think the disposable income, you know, in rural areas, yes, would be a bit more driven by daily wage versus to an extent in urban areas, a salary. So that in itself dictates, um, you know, the capacity um, individuals in different households would have in terms of purchasing power. My view would be that the rural households would spend a bit more, slightly more on food, um, which is, I mean, for me, the logic is that, the, the, the first of all, the average income is lower. Um, and then they would spend a bit less on, on other aspects, you know, things like housing, transport, power, which would be a huge chunk of what those in the, in the urban um, households would technically spend on as well. I think overall, the key thing to note is that the very different, you know, what, what would really stand out is the portion of pack sizes. So the rate at which you would consume certain items in, in, in the rural would be quite different from urban. Because for urban, um, you know, people would tend to do a bit more bulk or, I mean, not bulk in the sense of it, but I would rather go to the market maybe once every two weeks, you know, for certain items. And therefore that could dictate the kind of pack sizes I buy, you know, I would, I would purchase. So I think at the end of the day, the portion of pack size, you know, has a role to play. Um, therefore the patterns would be quite similar. Um, the quantity purchased is where there would be um, a difference between both households. Okay. Okay, so you know, if this is a follow-up question or a follow-up thought, I imagine that there is a visible difference with regards to consumption patterns across um, the six geopolitical zones. And in the latest inflation report, which um, that is the report for July, Aquibom recorded the highest headline inflation rates at 22.8%. Uh, while Jigawa recorded um, the lowest at 16.6%. Uh, and these are year-on-year -year, um, growth figures or year-on-year -year inflation trend figures, sorry. Now, household baskets vary across states due to different consumption patterns. Do you agree with this? And then can you share some insights around states that you would consider as heavy consumer states? Okay, so... I think the first thing I would say is the Nigerian con consumer, um, Nigerian consumers, you know, are, are very diverse. You know, you would see that diversity in terms of um, taste profile, you know, for example, taste profile for food, um, fragrance preference, even for detergents or soaps, you know, other skincare products. Um, so, so that in itself drives, you know, a certain um, um, pattern across the country you know, in terms of the geopolitical zones. So that's the first thing. 
Um, I think overall, you know, there would be the typical, you know, heavy hitters such as Lagos, Rivers, Kano, Abuja. Um, the next level I would say is typically most state capitals would be an area of focus um, simply because of the concentration of the state civil service workers and the obvious domino effect of, of, of the presence of having so many um, employees, you know, with the state civil service, you know, concentrated in a city. I think the other interesting trend would um, perhaps be the South-South states, you know, especially because there's an added layer in terms of, you know, oil-related establishments or even the NDDC, for example. So what tends to happen, therefore, is that because it's not just limited to state civil service, you have a bit more um, spread in terms of the population with an earning power that is, you know, favorable. It, it's, it's very favorable, you know, compared to the cost of living in those areas. And so, again, that, those, those will sort of be areas of, you know, focus in terms of um, heavy consumer states. Okay, thank you so much for that. <laughs> I was scribbling in my newspad. Thank you. <laughs> um, now, FX liquidity remains a challenge. How has this exacerbated the impact of the current supply shocks? And from your perspective, is it fine to assume that companies within the consumer goods space are struggling with passing costs, that's increased costs to consumers? Or are there projections of demand in an elasticity that would allow price revisions to take place with ease? Yeah, so, I mean, the, 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 the pressure on, on Forex is, is um, affecting almost everyone, you know, as we would have seen in the news. Um, I think, you know, for me, I, I choose to view it as a situation where, um, as a country, we just need to open up other sources of Forex beyond oil. I, I think that's that's really where we need to get to. You know, for me, that that's the the end game to to get out of this um, situation. Um, and I think for me, we're beginning to see across the country a bit more focus on localization, which, in truth, you know, is an aspect of our economy that I would say it's still relatively underexploited. I think the the the, the added incentive by the CBN. Um, you know, through the RT200 program, you know, also sort of gives credence to this, which we're now seeing a bit more ramping up in, in terms of non-oil exports, you know, to, to becoming a, a source of Forex as well. I, it's still a long way to go, but at, at least I think we're sort of on the right track directionally. Even beyond consumer goods, we'll, I mean, recently, one of the largest construction companies, if not the largest in Nigeria, announced that they will be going into the processing of cashew, which essentially um, would most likely lead to export as well. So, so I, I think that diversification and the focus on localization is really what would sort of unlock some of the opportunities eventually. Um, because overall, you know, Passing all of this to the consumer, you, you can't continue to do that because at some point, um, affordability has to come in as well. And, and I think that's why you find most companies now looking a bit more inward to see how to, um, you know, be a bit more efficient, be a bit more less reliant on, on Forex in the same vein as well. So, so for me, that, that, that's how I would say it. Okay. Okay, so... Um, you've mentioned local substitution, so I'm going to touch upon that some more. 
Sure. How has backward integration assisted with um, easing the pressure on operations? That's if it has. Um, what role does localized supply chains and technology play in helping to reduce cost push inflation pressure? Sure. So, I mean, beyond the lesser dependence on Forex to run your operations, um, for me, the other you know, opportunities here would be, it, it helps you optimize your inventory, which improves you know, cash flow. And, and of course, that's very key to running a business. Um, I think also you, you reduce your risk, you know, your, your risk level in terms of managing global shocks. So at least managing local shocks. Um, and if I give a practical example, today, you know, in, in terms of the supply chain, already everybody's going crazy about the energy crisis in Europe because it could lead to, you know, potential shutdowns. It could lead to a situation where um, manufacturers in Europe say, look, I have to ration out my, my operations. I can't run at this level of energy cost. So, so you know, you go, you, you, you move away from being so tied to what is happening everywhere across the world, the lockdown in China um, and, and all of that. You get to a point where it's not a major influence on the outcome of your supply chain. And, and that way, you know, you become more flexible um, and then your supply chain becomes more responsive because a responsive supply chain is a major enabler to the, you know, to the growth of the business, you know, especially with what we've talked about, changing consumer patterns and, of course, intense competition in the market. You don't want a situation where um, the response time for you to, you know, to land a new product or a new idea is, is sort of held back because, you know, something is happening maybe at the other end of the world. So, so for me, I think that that's also the, the, the leverage you get from backward integration. Okay, okay. So this is my final question. Yeah. What three policy actions would you recommend to the government to ensure that Nigerians are shielded from future supply shocks? Okay, so... Um, Maybe before I answer that, I just want to set a bit of context. Um, I think the first thing we need to acknowledge is that the world is changing rapidly. You know, previously there was um, VUCA, which was sort of the buzzword and the guiding principle, you know, and, and now of recent, we've been hearing of a new one called BANI, B-A-N-I, which is um, brittle, um, I hope I pronounced that right, um, which is basically saying, look, despite systems being, um, you know, looking reliable or, or flexible, it could actually get to the breaking point, you know, just out of the blues. For example, um, the semiconductor chips shortage hitting the car manufacturing industry or the travel, um, air travel industry not being able to cope with, you know, rising demands um, of passengers, even though it's not at peak levels. And the only solution to, to that is really around capacity and, and resilience. And then you have um, anxious, which is the A, which is about, you know, it's almost like we're waiting for the next disaster to happen from COVID to global shipping crisis to the semiconductor chip shortage to inflation across the world. 
um, oil prices and the, and the rest of it, and obviously to the um, Russia-Ukraine war. And, and so, you know, everyone is almost on their toes that, okay, what could go wrong next? And again, the solution to this is how economies, you know, economies and, and companies deal with these circumstances in a productive way, you know, in such a way that you, you're, you're almost trying to anticipate that something could go wrong and, and you're trying to respond in a manner that, you know, ensures you're, you're on top of your game and ahead of the curve. And then the N is non-linear, which is, you know, cause and consequences are no longer predictable. You know, unlike in the past where certain things you, you could, you know, to an extent use the trends and the rest of it. We're having some situations where it's just not adding up, which case in point is the impact of COVID-19 in Africa. All indicators would have pointed to the fact that Africa would have been worse hit, you know. So again, in, in dealing with that, you need to sort of be very quick to understand the context and also begin to adapt. And then the I is for in, incomprehensible, which is basically based on the nonlinear outcomes. Then you realize at times, you know, investigations and trying to understand in some instances may not be value adding because the truth is some things have just happened. And it could be that that is, you know, that's a new trend entirely beyond the conventional way of thinking. Um, and, you know, in, in, in some situations, more information could actually overwhelm thinking capacity. So, again, at times we just need to acknowledge these new trends and patterns. And, and of course, this is where human knowledge plus artificial intelligence now comes in to step up some level of, you know, transparency and a fine balance between intuition and data. Having said all of this, you know, I would raise my hands up and say, look, I probably would would say that you almost cannot have enough policies to deal with the complex situation you know, the world is in right now. And I think the key thing is to remain flexible you know, and continuously accept the, the times we live in and just let you know, some of the framework which I've, I've tried to explain guide our policy making because at any point in time, um, things could change and therefore it's how quickly we are flexible you know, and, and, and adapt to some of these things that would influence the kind of policies we put in place. So, so I would rather approach it from that angle um, in terms of the areas where, um, you know, the government needs to focus on. I, I think it's really just, you know, we continue to pay attention to what's happening globally and ensure that um, whatever it is we are um, deciding for the country, you know, it's in the best interest from the, the point of view of, being very flexible um, in terms of, because opportunities would come up as well. Um, opportunities will come up and, and, and that's where if we position our economy right, then we're able to latch onto it. Hmm. Very, very insightful very contributions, insightful. which have um, provided deeper insights into the correlation between supply chain dynamics, uh, consumption patterns, and of course, rising inflation. Thank you so much, Toby, for accepting our invitation and um, sharing. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you so much. And of course, for sharing from your extensive uh, bank of knowledge. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Be sure to look out for the next episode. In the meantime, reflect on the insightful nuggets you received you can listen by visiting www.coronationmb.com 
or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, Spreaker, and Player FM. Mm-hmm.